Listener Production. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Last week, Buckingham Palace announced King Charles was going to have a procedure on his prostate. The news prompted an 11-fold increase in internet searches for enlarged prostate, which is a win for men's health. Katrina and I were discussing this story in the headlines late last week and had a bit of a laugh. And we got some feedback from Charlotte, who sent us a DM on Instagram. She was worried our coverage of this story could contribute to stigmatisation and discourage men from seeking health care. Look, the strangeness of discussing a senior royal's prostate admittedly made us giggle. But it is a really serious issue and I can see why there was concern in the way we treated the story. Men die on average four years younger than women in Australia. And part of the reason is that they don't go to the doctor as much as they should. So on today's episode, we're hearing from a man who did go to the doctor about a sensitive issue and it may have saved his life. But first, Benson Siebert is here with the headlines. It's Monday, January 22. G'day, Sasha. A gas deal designed to keep the lights on and energy bills affordable has been locked in by the federal government. Woodside and Esso have been secured to supply gas-fired power stations in the southeast of the country until 2033. The deal has an enforceable commitment under the gas code, and that code means energy companies are exempt from the price cap on gas of $12 a gigajoule domestically if they agree to supply commitments to the East Coast market. Yeah, and that might sound like a bit of mumbo jumbo to, you know, ordinary Aussies, including me. What the hell is a gigajoule? But it is significant because Anthony Albanese is this week looking to strengthen his cost of living credentials and supplying gas and electricity and power and lowering bills is part of that. Now, he's called an urgent Labor caucus meeting for Wednesday to talk out the best ways to reduce consumer costs without adding to inflation, basically ensuring only the people who really need help are getting it. Last year, the Bureau of Statistics highlighted three key policies that do help drive prices down. That's rental assistance, childcare subsidies and relief for power bills. The Prime Minister is going to give an address on Thursday and there are signals we could see announcements on cost of living before the May budget, Bensian. Yeah, and speaking of cost of living, there's this story in the Saturday paper over the weekend about Coles and Woolworths being set to face a full ACCC inquiry. Now, obviously, they've been criticised for making higher margins on food during the cost of living crisis, and now they're facing this new investigation. And that's on top of the multiple wage theft court decisions and also a scheduled review of the Voluntary Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, which will be led by the former competition minister, Craig Emerson. A grim new milestone has been hit in Gaza, with the local-run health ministry confirming the death toll has now passed 25,000 people. Israel's war on Hamas has seen mostly women and children killed on the Strip, with the UN's chief describing the scale of civilian death as heartbreaking and utterly unacceptable. In Gaza... Israel's military operations have spread massive destruction and killed civilians on a scale unprecedented during my time as Secretary General. 
That was Antonio Guterres there speaking at the opening of the G77 summit in Uganda a short time ago. Israel is continuing with its offensive in Gaza and officials say fighting there is likely to continue for months. But there is a gap widening between ordinary Israelis and the government over the conflict with concerns on home soil for the hostages that are still being held by Hamas four months on from the October 7 attacks. While a member of Israel's war cabinet, former Army Chief Gadi Eisenkot, said last week that the only way to free the remaining hostages was through a ceasefire. So this is the first time, Benson, we're kind of hearing this rhetoric coming from Israelis and even someone who uh, is in the war cabinet saying that maybe this isn't the best way to go about things and a a different approach is needed. Yeah, but the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is not signalling much of a different approach. He reiterated his opposition to a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine on Twitter on Saturday night, saying, I will not compromise on full Israeli security control over the entire area in the west of Jordan. This is contrary to a Palestinian state. Now let's have a listen to what Antonio Guterres said about that. Allow humanitarian aid to reach everyone in need and facilitate the release of hostages, which should be immediate and unconditional. The repeated refusal yesterday to accept the two-state solutions for Israeli and Palestinians is totally unacceptable. Now, this idea two-state solution is something that you might have we, we all might have heard throughout this conflict. And the reason why Australia, the US, the UN and lots of countries for decades have said that the two-state solution is the best is that it's the best of three basic options for Israel and Palestine. The first is what's been happening for a long time, which is effectively an apartheid one-state solution with Israel and it, the Israeli government having uh, seizures of Palestinian land and property, unlawful killings, that kind of thing. Then there's the so-called free one-state solution where it would be a multicultural society where everyone has the same rights and responsibilities. That's not something that the Israeli population is likely to accept because uh, there's 5 million, approximately 5 million Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and adding that entire population to the people who vote for the Israeli Knesset which is their parliament effectively, isn't something that the Israeli public is going to accept. So what's left out of that is a two-state solution with two governments and two peoples who are represented each. And that's why uh, it's something that the UN has been keen on for a really long time. And in the Australian Open, Alex Dimonor has sadly been knocked out. It's tough tough match to to finish up my my campaign here obviously had aspirations for for more but um yeah my time here was cut short the number 10 seed was taken down in a massive five set match lasting more than four hours by russia's andre rublev the aussie lost the first set then managed to claw back the next two both of them tiebreakers but eventually rublev wore the demon down taking the final two sets six three six love so this means it's the end for the demon's quest to reach the quarterfinals here for the first time 
For the number five seed, Rublev, it's familiar territory. It's his 10th time making it to the final eighth of a major. Benson, I'm really sad this morning about this. I was really banking on Alex Dimonor yeah. to represent the Aussie hopes and make it all the way to the end. I was ready for him to take down Djokovic again because he had this dream start to this campaign. So he defeated Djokovic at the United Cup and everyone sat up and went, oh, here we go, here we go. Um, it's worth noting Aussie hopes aren't over. Matthew Ebden and Storm Hunter are still in contention. They're the top seeds in the mixed doubles. So we don't have anyone in the singles, but we do still have teams in the doubles. Uh, and another interesting thing that I saw was... Leighton Hewitt's son playing in the junior boys singles yesterday. Now, he didn't win. Uh, he lost 6-2, 6-3 to American six seed Alexander Rezegi. But there was this photo of him, you know, hitting the ball. And uh, one of the papers did like a sliding picture and it had Leighton Hewitt on one side and then uh, Cruz, his son, on the other side. And they looked exactly the same. So I think we're in for a resurgence of Hewitt mania here in Australia and in the tennis. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, Bensian. Let's get into our briefing today, which is all about men's health and why blokes need to be checking themselves more. Men die on average four years earlier than women in Australia. Men are also likely to experience more health complaints throughout their life. And despite that, there's something about our masculine urge to appear strong and in control that means men see the doctor a lot less than women do. Testicular cancer and melanoma are the most common cancers in men under 40 and over 20. And with both of these, it's absolutely vital that we catch them early. Jonathan Papadopoulos joins me. He was diagnosed with testicular cancer in the beginning of 2021 when he was 29 years old. Hi, Jonathan. How and when did you realise something wasn't right? That's a really good question. So it was um, New Year's Eve, just about to turn to 2021. Uh, I was getting ready to go out, had a shower, got out of the shower and my husband came up to me and said, your ball looks weird which was a, you know, a nice thing to hear as you get out of the shower. And it did. It just looked, looked a little bit smaller and felt just a little bit squishy, a little bit different. But, you know, it was New Year's Eve. I was too busy getting ready to party to really worry about it. I ended up, you know, booking in to see my GP. And I saw him and he said, it's probably nothing, nothing to worry about, but we'll book you in for an ultrasound. But don't expect to hear anything back from me. So I thought, all good. That afternoon when I had the ultrasound, the next morning I got out of the shower and there were five missed calls from my doctor. So it kind of gave me the idea that um, maybe something has gone on. Oh, God. I saw the doctor that morning and he said that they found some kind of anomaly on the ultrasound that they couldn't really explain and they'd have to go see a urologist. I was living in Tasmania at the time, so went over to Hobart Hospital. That must have been really frightening. Uh, it was a little bit frightening, a little bit stressful. I guess you don't really know how you're going to react to that kind of situation until you're in it. I do, though, have a long history of cancer on both sides of my family. So in some ways, it was almost not completely out of the blue. When I went and saw the urologist, I found out that while there's only about a thousand cases of testicular cancer diagnosed uh, every year in Australia, it's probably the most common cancer for men aged 18 to 40 outside of skin cancer. 
you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I think for a lot of people who, who've never had the experience of having a cancer diagnosis, they'd be interested in what that moment is like in the sense of how does a doctor tell you that mm. you've got cancer? Uh, so my doctor was very nervous to tell me, I think, probably because he had spent the whole day before saying there's probably nothing, don't stress about it. He just said, look, I can't tell you that it's cancer. We won't know until you go see the urologist, but there is something strange on it uh, in, in the ultrasound. You definitely need to go see someone. What did I feel like? There was a bit of shock. I was a little bit angry. I was a little bit sad. You have that kind of whole mix of emotions that run through your head. But my doctor was really good. He was very empathetic, spoke to me in a way that really tried to answer all the questions that I had. He also made it really clear to me that testicular cancer had a less than 1% fatality rate. So it was highly unlikely that I was going to die. Hearing that was really what I needed to hear. So that was a great thing. Absolutely. So how early in the progression of the cancer did they pick it up? And I actually caught it incredibly early. So early, in fact, that the urologist that I saw was surprised they had come to him that early and even said I could have waited another six months before we had surgery. So I ended up being diagnosed as what they call a stage 1A seminoma. So there's two main kinds of testicular cancer, seminoma and non-seminoma. Non-seminomas tend to be more aggressive and been made up of multiple kinds of cancers. I had the seminoma. Stage 1A meant it basically just started to form. So could you tell us how, once you found out that you had cancer, what the treatment was like mm. and then how you are now medically? Yeah, most forms of cancer, a doctor would normally do a biopsy, which is a really small, tiny, tiny surgery. They take a little piece of uh, tissue out and, and uh, study it. With testicular cancer, they are unable to do biopsies. So the testicles are not connected. They're not connected to each other. They're quite separate. And very rarely do people get cancer in both testicles at the same time. They can't do biopsy on testicular cancer because they run the risk of cancer spreading. The only way to properly diagnose it is to remove the testicle and then do a biopsy once it's been removed. So... After I saw the doctor, I went and saw a urologist at Royal Hobart Hospital. He felt me up, checked my bloods, did all of that, booked me in for surgery. The surgery was a very interesting experience. Went into the room. It was packed. As I said, testicular cancer, while there's about a 1,000 cases a year, it's not really that common. I was the first case in Tasmania for a six-month period. And so they had about a dozen um, surgical interns and they're ready to watch and learn. But it was fine. I was knocked out within five seconds, so I wasn't really too stressed about it. I woke up with a very small scar. They basically do an incision where your pubic hair is and they go in there and pull the testicle out. I was very lucky because I had caught the cancer quite early. It hadn't spread beyond my testicle. So I didn't require any chemo or radiation, which was really good. I'm still in the five-year window. So when most people are diagnosed with cancer, you have follow-ups every six to 12 months within a five-year window just to see how you're going. I'm going back to hospital next month and I'm hoping then to get my three-year cancer-free check. Great. Let's hope for that. Yeah, um, thank you. I think 
for a lot of men, certainly they're very attached to their (laughs) genitals and their testicles. Yeah. What was, what was that like? What was the thought process that you had to go through when you eventually lost one of those testicles? Yeah. Look, my dad um, spoke to me after the surgery and said, you know, when you look down, does it make you feel any less or feel any different? I really had two choices. I either had the choice of having my testicle removed or being killed by cancer. So to me, there was there was a very obvious choice. It in no yeah. way makes me feel like less of a man. If anything, the testicle that I do have has gotten bigger. So that's, you know, a fun little bonus. It hasn't affected my testosterone in any way. I before I had the surgery, I have test had testosterone that was well above average. I still have testosterone well above average. My sexual function is not impacted in any way. Everything still works mm-hmm. down there. I checked within three days after the surgery to make sure everything is still working. It still did. So in that sense, there is. I sometimes forget that I've only got one ball. You know, it doesn't really feature in my mind that heavily at all. What would your message be to uh, men about this? Mm. And what should what should we look for uh, to make sure that we're okay or to catch a cancer early if it does turn up? That's a good, that's a really good question. Uh, the one thing I would say is that men, more so than women, die from preventable disease. And that's simply because men do not go to the doctor. So do not be scared of going to the doctor. There's nothing wrong with doing it. Even if you find out that you have cancer, you'd much rather have it diagnosed by someone and treated rather than leaving it too late. It's really important to be familiar with what your body looks like. If you start to notice pain, if you start to notice a change in the size, a change in the texture, a change in the feeling, there's nothing wrong with going to see the doctor and getting it looked at. And most times it'll turn out to be nothing. That was Jonathan Papadopoulou. So tonight, go check your balls. Make sure nothing unusual is happening. And if something is not right, go to the doctor. It could save your life. That's all for your morning briefing. Be sure to check your feed from 3pm for your afternoon edition of The Briefing. And we want to hear from you. Search The Briefing Podcast on Instagram, send us a DM and tell us what you think of the show. I'm Ben Sion Siebert. Thanks for listening. Listener.